That's good. So your cousin had an interesting break. <laughs> No, they don't. They really don't. And if you want garlic in England, you have to have Indian food. Otherwise, there's no garlic. Um, all right, so what do we think of the Witch of Atlas? <laughs> we nod. <laughs> all right. Kevin, say more. Um, I want to say just say I liked it. That's fine. Why did you like it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I was reading about this and it was um, Mary Shelley's criticism of it was that it wasn't about anything. Mm-hmm. And I kind of read it through that context. And, I mean, I guess it's, it's really mostly like an origin story. She just kind of right. Yeah, so is that good or bad then? Uh-huh. Yeah, so what so do we want more than good poetry from poetry? Let me just ask you this as a question. Do we want more from po- what do we want from poetry? Do we want more than good poetry or is that what we want? I think that good poetry can be very different. It can be just like pretty like words and then other good poetry can have such significant meaning that good poetry is like subjective, but at the same time it's like very easy to it is very easy. Not, it's not, like, not very easy. No, 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 no. I'm asking. Like, yeah. That you can like say like like when you read something and you feel something, whether mm-hmm. it's just about like because the words are beautiful or because it has like a significant meaning, that's good poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, so look, this is. I'm sure some of you are taking this because it fit into your schedule. Um, but this is actually not a course that particularly fulfills any requirement for the English major, except as an elective. Um, so, I mean, I guess it does some genre thing, but who knows. Um, so, presumably, you're here because at least a lot of you like poetry, which is getting to be a rarer and rarer fact, just the way um, English is works as a discipline these days. Um, so, you must want something from poetry when you read poetry, if you're here because you like poetry. Um, some people are actually here getting getting a graduate degree in English which is like, how crazy is that Um, in this day and age? Um, So what is it that you want from poetry? I mean, this is a question that the romantics are always asking. Um, What is it that you want from poetry? This is Byron is complaining about what Wordsworth and Coleridge and Southey are offering. Um, But remember, he's also said that he has spent his youth breaking his heart in love and his head on rhymes. So somehow love, loving and rhyming are the two things that he um, used up his youth doing. Um, so what do you want from poetry? Why read it? It's, it really is a question they're asking over and over. You guys are looking politely away, asking, waiting for someone else to answer it. You can say anything. You can say, I want a good grade from poetry. Marielle, I want not too much reading in a class, although this would then probably be the wrong class. Marielle. Um, I mean, I think what I like about poetry is that it takes 
experiences that a lot of people have, and it puts it into like really beautiful like language that makes you look at it from a different way mm-hmm. than it is in your own head, mm-hmm. which I think is different than just reading like prose, like going on and on about it. But the way that you can craft poetry is so much more creative. Mm-hmm. That so it, I don't know, it like resonates more. I think. Okay, so in a sense, what you're saying is you want the resonance. Yeah. Okay, I you think can that. You get from prose also, but. Yes. Yeah. Well, Coleridge um, defined prose as the right words and poetry as the right words in the right order. Um, And so that can be a way of both putting them on a continuum and also um, saying what's different about them. Um, Yeah, Tony. Uh, I kind of think back to Burke and his essay on the sublime. That's kind of what I like about poetry is it's Mm-hmm. Okay, so it takes you to the mountaintop and blows you away. And so if you're thinking that you might be reading great poetry, you're, that's what you're sort of hoping will happen, right? And so is it the jerk, like, emotional reaction? Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, reading poetry in order to, what, immerse yourself in an emotional reaction or to feel um, something that that totally captivates you. Um, your word was uh, was resonance, um, but those two things could, those might be two names for the same thing, one, one a stronger name than the other, but still it might be something like the same experience. Barbara, are you about to say something? Oh, just, I was thinking resonance kind of applies to it, just, yeah, the sounds of it to me, it's when it flows, then it, um, it kind of just is very easy to fall into. Mm-hmm. So the sound is very important. Okay, so there, there's a sense, I, li- I like that description of falling into it. Um, what is it that you fall into when you fall into, I mean, just follow that metaphor out. Um, what do you feel that you're falling into? Are you falling into what? <laughs> Okay, so use a metaphor for it. Um, I mean, the music of the language is sort of a metaphor, but sort of not. But is it like falling into a stream, into a well, into um, a pit, into a grave? Um, no, I mean, what is, when we talk about falling into things, often, if you don't think about the metaphor, it feels like falling into a rhythm. Um, our word cadence means falling. You know what a cadence is. Um, and it means falling because you're going from stress to unstress. That's what, that's what it means in both music and um, rhythm in general. Um, but so you fall into what? A pattern, a cadence, a rhythm. That's one possibility of what you would fall into. Another thing you might fall into is something like a trance um, or a well or um, an ocean. Um, or a valley, or a chasm, or a canyon. Um, so which feels, when you talk about falling into poetry... Really, it was more like water. And flowing water. Flowing, yeah. so, so going with it. Going with the flow somehow. Um, does that sound like what you mean by resonance? That sense of going with the flow? Yeah, part of it. Okay, and what part doesn't? Um, 
mean, I get like the whole like falling into it because I definitely feel that. But for residents, it was more just I think the way that they craft the words mm -hmm. and like the specifics of it sometimes like really like hit a chord. Yeah. Okay. So you're using a musical image also, but yours is more melodic. That is, you, do people know the difference between a melody and a chord? What's the difference? Um, a chord is just like one, um, like one single um, note made of, not note, but. Yeah, well, the, the, the most basic thing you can say is that a melody is when you um, play the notes in a chord separately from each other. Um, that is, uh, if you play C, E, G um, all at once, you get a chord. Or if you play C, then E, then G, then you get the rudiments of a melody. So a chord is a, a melody is like a chord distributed over time, or a set of chords distributed over time. This is in, in Western um, tonal music, but it's um, um, probably sufficiently close to universal that you can say it is a universal fact. Um, a melody is like a chord distributed over time, and a chord is like a melody all played at once. Um, Obviously, you can't. That's that's very very simplified, but that's a very basic idea. Do people know that? Is this okay? Um, I mean, just think of if any of you play guitar. You first learn to play chords, and then you learn to um, play string by string. But first, you need to know the chords. Right? Does anyone play guitar? No one in this class plays guitar. What do you play? Piano. So <laughs> piano. Um, huh. Well. So this won't have resonance for you. But, um, but Shelley played guitar. In fact, his guitar is on display in the Bodleian Library, or at least it used to be in Oxford. Um, so you should ask your friend from England to go look at it. Um, when you play guitar, the way you form chords is with your left hand. Do people know this? By, by um, pressing down on different strings so that you affect the length of the strings and then by playing a chord, you just strum three or four or five or six strings. Um, if you're going to play a melody, you may keep your left hand in the same position, but play string by string instead of um, playing all the strings at once. And that shows you something like the relationship of chord and melody. Um, so one is the unpacking of the other, or you could say the other is the compressing of the one, um, depending on whether you're going from chord to melody or melody to chord. But they're related. Um, that's the point, that somehow um, what's happening is you are being brought to some kind of harmony, um, and the harmony can be extended over time, um, but it's also something that can occur moment to moment, as here is the harmony. Um, I think that's really a whole lot of um, what a lot of poetry does, at least a lot of poetry when you say, I want to read this because it's a beautiful poem, I'm told it's a beautiful poem. Um, that's not quite why, why we read Don Juan. We read Don Juan because it was hilarious, um, because it was about everything, because it was energetic, um, because it discussed stuff, because it was outrageous in all sorts of different ways, um, because it was completely brilliant. Um, but it's hard to think of reading Don Juan just for the resonance in Don Juan. Um, obviously, there are parts of it that are highly um, resonant, but um, lots of it that isn't. 
Um, would you say? Would you agree with that? That fall, you don't fall into Don Juan in the same way that you fall into the Witch of Atlas. Would you agree that the resonance of the Witch of Atlas is somehow much more present than the resonance of Don Juan? Um, so, so you're getting different things out of it. One thing you could say is Don Juan is much more content oriented than the Witch of Atlas. Um, that's the first thing that you were bringing up, um, Tony. That that um, that the did people read the introductory verses to Mary on her um, complaining um, of the want of well let's look at them anyhow um, on her objecting to the following poem upon the score of its containing no human interest um, did your heart sink when you read that parentheses? Did you think no human interest? Who wants to read that? Your heart did sink. No, I just thought it was funny. <laughs> okay. Harsh on her part, but he quotes it. He makes it um, part of the poem. And then um, he says, well, here's why I'm writing the poem. How, my dear Mary, are you critic-bitten? For vipers killed though dead. So did some critic make you think this? That poems had to have human interest? Um, they're vipers, even though they're dead. That's what critics are. Uh, remember what Byron says about critics, that um, if they don't think his poem is good, it's, well, really, because they're mistaken. Um, but he really likes them. He spends a lot of time saying, you know, you critics, you guys, I really like you. How about a good review? Um, but... How, my dear Mary, are you critic-bitten for Vipers Kill Though Dead by some review that you condemn these verses I have written because they tell no story, false or true? So there we get something which is as different from Don Juan as can be, at least it feels at first. Um, no story is going to be told here. He begins by saying there's going to be no story here. What, though no mice are caught by a young kitten, may it not leap and play as grown cats do till its claws come? Prithee, for this one time, content thee with a visionary rhyme. So what's he saying about this visionary rhyme? What's it like? What's the simile or the metaphor? Like a young kid doesn't catch mice. Yeah, but it's totally playful. It's not about catching mice. So here's, there's an implication that some poems are about catching mice. Some poems are good for catching mice with. And some poems are just kittens at play. Um, and um, they can has cheeseburgers, um, but they're just being playful. Um, what would it mean for a poem to catch a mouse in this context? Yeah. For more than just the the sound of it, like a deeper meaning, kind of, or or telling a story mm -hmm. more about the content. Okay, telling a story more about the content. Um, <clears throat> a grown cat um, would have a goal, and the goal would probably be, be more than just the story, but it would be something like the moral of the story. Um, that is, why write a poem? Well, in order to make a point. Um, so when I asked you guys, you know, what do you go to poetry for, um, it doesn't sound like you go to poetry for what Shelley is thinking that Mary Shelley is going to poetry for. 
um, which is immoral. And what he's saying is, no, look, here what I'm giving you is simply the, um, the outside without some hidden inside, to use the old um, um, metaphor. Um, I'm giving you the gilding without the pill, the sugar without the pill. Um, that is, say, it used to be that people would justify literature. You know, why waste your time on literature? Um, it's just stupid and, and prevents you from doing stuff that really matters in life. And um, writers would say, well, actually, um, literature or the story or the poetry or the beauty or whatever is the gilding on the pill. Um, it makes it possible to convey a moral by getting people interested in the story and then um, when they swallow the story they swallow the moral as well. Um, so that idea of literature, you know, that's, that's Sunday morning, that's Aesop's fables, that's Sunday morning TV, at least what Sunday morning TV was like when I grew up, which is just a real wasteland. Um, and, but the idea is, yeah, you, you learn something important, you become a better person, and the story is what attracts you to um, take the bait, and the bait is good for you. The, um, the story makes the medicine go down. Um, the idea of gilding a pill, um, a lot of people think it means covering a pill with sugar, but it doesn't. It actually means covering it with gold um, or sometimes silver. That is a very, very thin bit of precious metal, um, which they believed once would make it go down more easily and also make it more effective. Um, but the idea was, oh, yeah, there's this beautiful outside, and then the medicine is inside. Um, but you can call it sugar coating. Um, so what he's saying here is um, it's just the sugar that you're going to get here. Um, pure junk food for the soul. Um, not chicken soup, but junk food for the soul. At least that's what her objection is. And um, so what she seems to want is something like a moral. And he says, well, just once let me write a poem without a moral. Um, from this poem, or even from Julian and Madelo, or from to Wordsworth, which are the Shelley poems we've done so far, what kind of moral do you think Shelley would be pressing? What kind of moral do you think Mary thinks is lacking here? What kind of moral does Byron press? Do you think of Mo Byron as a moralistic poet? You, the easy answer is, are you out of your mind? Um, but that's the wrong answer. Um, in, in his own way. In his own way, he's pressing a moral. Yeah. And what is that moral? Who does he hate most in Don Juan? <laughs> no, he doesn't hate Juan. He doesn't hate Haiti. Um, he doesn't hate... Um, those who are Jewin's true friends, who does he hate in Don Jewin? He hates the people who preach morals. Okay, so he hates moralists. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and he doesn't preach against them, he just hates them. Yeah? Any, any sort of repression or anybody who represses embracing the present? Yeah. Anyone who is against love. Um, anyone who is against um, human freedom, you could say. Um, 
what is wrong with, with Hades' father? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He 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 tra- he traffics in slaves. Um, what is wrong with uh, what's happened to Greece? It's under it's under tyranny. It's under the tyranny of the Ottoman Empire. Um, what is wrong with Juan's mother? If you remember her. As you will for the exam. Have you ever taught Byron, like, about Byron? Uh, <laughs> nice. <Lewin>. Uh huh. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> about, uh, like, learning from like, books and stuff. Yeah, she wanted to repress him. She didn't want him learning about love and life and so on. So Byron is, is um, for the possibilities of the human spirit and against greed and repression and um, people oppressing each other. Um, that's what makes him, um, what made Marx regard him as one of the radical poets, is that he, that he writes, that he does have a moral, and that moral is on behalf of human freedom. Um, and you can say, you know, there's a lot, you're perfectly entitled to say there's a lot wrong with Byron, um, it would be hard not to think there was a lot wrong with him. Um, he certainly felt very highly of himself, and he was certainly very disappointed with those around him. And you might even have occasionally noticed just the barest hint of sexism in um, some of his poetry. I don't know whether you did or not. Um, but nevertheless, um, what he's against, the person that he's most vicious about is, remember, the intellectual eunuch Castlereagh. And he's also vicious about anyone who sucks up to those in power. And whatever else Don Juan is, it's um, the opposite of sucking up. Um, He sometimes parodies sucking up, as in the joke about the critics, um, and or about um, meeting a tough guy. He says, well, if someone thinks my poem isn't moral, um, I'm, if, they're, if they're a clergyman, I tell him that he lies. Um, if they happen to be a military man, I will tell him that he lies, too, under a mistake. That is, he sort of does a John Stewart pullback and says, no, 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 you're just mistaken, rather than, you liar! It's, eh, you're lying under a mistake, um, rather than being a liar. I know it's hard to think John Stewart and Lord Byron simultaneously. Um, but there is overlap there. Um, their jokes are sometimes um, similar. You know that Byron would have liked The Daily Show. Um, He's so funny. As I saw a taping of it a couple months ago. Cool. Like when, you were there? Even, yeah, and even like when the, they do like the commercial breaks and everything. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's when he's like funny, right? He'll be right? Like talking to the audience. Yeah. And he's just like... Yeah, I actually had a student so who interned for him. Yeah. I just knew interned for him, and then she went and interned for The Onion. Um, sorry? Yeah. She also came in, I think, like 50th in the National Rock, Paper, Scissors competition. Um, That's a super hard game. Sorry? It's a super hard game. Yeah, she says, she says it's really easy to read guys when you're playing rock, paper, scissors. 
She says, if you're female and you're going against a guy, paper. That's always your first move. Um, even among experts who are in the National Rock, Paper, Scissors competition. So this is, this is information you can use. Okay? All right. Um, both, I mean, everyone can use it. Because if you're a guy in the National Rock, Paper, Scissors competition, just be aware that any woman who knows what she's doing is going to start with paper. Um, so just go straight for scissors. Um, I know it's hard. Okay. Um, so think now of Julian and Madela, um, the, the kind of conversation, um, the kind of debate that Julian and Madelow had. Uh, what did they agree on? Byron and Shelley. They obviously disagree, but the first question is, where do they agree? Because if you figure out where they agree, you can then see what it is that the disagreement is about. So hard to think past a vacation. I know. Yeah. I feel like the disagreement is about optimism versus nihilism. Okay, optimism versus nihilism. Um, good. Optimism versus nihilism about what? Yeah. The human condition and people's ability to deal with the ups and downs of Yeah. Okay, so let's say that that Castle Ray or someone of that ilk, um, you know that ilk is always a bad word, um, someone of that ilk had joined the conversation. Um, so Julian and Madelow, remember what they're arguing about is um, whether it's possible to um, be hopeful about the future, hopeful about the world, hopeful that things will be okay. And Julian says, yes. Um, for I always thought, is it not, um, um, is it not right to make the best of ill? Um, but pride made my companion take the darker side, and he said it's all hopeless. Then in comes Castlereagh, um, or some, or Southey, and what will they say? What will Southey, or um, the way Shelley and Byron are thinking about him, or Castlereagh, the way Shelley and Byron are thinking about him, um, what would, what would they say to what Julian and Madelow are saying? Again, you could put this in, in you, could, you could modernize this in modern political terms. So you could imagine, let's say, a debate um, between um, two members of one party about the possibilities of what will happen in the future, and then in comes a member of the other party. So I don't know if this is going to be helpful. Um, Julian and Madelow are complaining, among other things, about the influence of what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Julian is certainly complaining about it, and Madelow isn't disagreeing. Um, so what would happen if in came... Um, a completely different kind of person. So he basically lay it out like this. Julian is saying, um, Julian and Madler are both saying that religion is oppressive. Julian is saying 
Um, nevertheless, I think we can break the fetters of religion, and Madelow is saying that will never happen. I mean, they're not actually saying that, but that's um, not unlike their positions. Um, that, in fact, that is what Julian says, that it might be that their chains are as brittle as straw, um, that people think they're enchained, and that's why they're enchained, but if they tried to break their chains, they would find them as brittle as straw, easily broken. Um, and only not broken because they don't know how easily their chains are broken. And Madlow is saying, you know, you're always an optimist. You always think these things are easy to break, but they're not. What would be the radically other position to that? What is it that Julian and Madlow are agreeing on there? Yeah. Excuse me? Yeah, that, that religion is oppressive. And so the radically... Um, oppositional side of that would be to say, no, religion is important. Religion is, is actually the best thing that can happen to human beings. We're all terrible sinners, and it's religion that keeps us in check and gives us some chance of salvation. So you can imagine, easily imagine, Savi, remember he's the one who was so outraged that Shelley wrote hell as his destination. Um, in the visitor's book on Mont Blanc, you could easily imagine um, Savi saying, you know, Shelley and Byron are debating, but th what they're debating about is um, whether you can escape religion, which is absurd because why would you escape religion? Religion is the best thing that ever happened to us. So Shelley and Byron would agree that it's the worst thing um, that happened to human beings, or one of the worst things that one of the one of the um, institutions of human oppression. They just disagree about whether you can escape from it or not. And Byron is much more pessimistic about that than Shelley. Um, nevertheless, they write against religion. They both write against religion. Do you see any of that in The Witch of Atlas? Yeah. Your hand was going up, so I said, yeah. Yeah, it was. You can just say, yes, I do see some of that. Or, well, no, I don't. I don't. No. Okay, where? Anyone? In the passage where um, the witch of Atlas like, um, soars above like, human beings sleeping. Uh -huh. And she sees their strides. Yeah. And so I think that strides can mean like, even religious strides for yeah. what's going on inside. Yeah, go to the end of the witch of Atlas. Um, and um, let's say um, let's start at um, Sixty-three, no, sixty-two. Um, so, towards the end of the poem, this is, I guess, about um, three quarters of the way through, at um, around line, eh, started sixty-one, line five twenty-nine. If you have it in line numbers, um, a pleasure sweet, doubtless it was to see mortals subdued in all the shapes of sleep, 
So remember, she's observing mortals in their sleep. Um, if any of you have taken a course on Whitman, you will know Whitman. One of Whitman's greatest poems is a poem called The Sleepers. And um, I think he may um, be remembering this when he writes it. Um, so she passed, through chambers high and deep she passed, observing mortals in their sleep. I'm just trying to think whether... Yeah, what you should... Um, I'm going to ask this as a question in a minute. Okay, under the Nile, through chambers high and deep, she passed, observing mortals in their sleep. A pleasure sweet, doubtless, it was to see mortals subdued in all the shapes of sleep. Here lay two sister twins in infancy, there a lone youth who in his dreams did weep. Within two lovers, linked innocently in their loose locks, which over both did creep like ivy from one stem. And there lay calm old age with snow-bright hair and folded palm. So she sees several people asleep. Um, and what does she see when they're asleep? What kind of people are they? Two kinds of people in the world. Those who say there are two kinds of people in the world. Okay, young and old. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. So you have two sister twins in infancy. Um, so they're two twin sisters, babies, asleep together. It's a beautiful image. Um, and two lovers linked innocently. That's could be out of Byron, right? That's the way Juan and Haiti sleep when they're asleep together, um, covered with their own hair. Um, and then an old person, or maybe many old people, with snow bright hair and folded palms, so old but calm. Um, not, this isn't an anguished old age, but this is a peaceful old age. And there lay calm old age with snow bright hair and folded palm. But what about the lone youth who in his dreams did weep? Does he belong to the same category as the others? Why not? Because he's lonely and because he's weeping. Um, so we're going to do a little lumping splitting game, which is so he, he's not like them because he's lonely and he's weeping, but how's he like them? Lump him with the others. He's sleeping, and what else? Dreaming. And how terrible are his dreams? What do you think he's weeping about? Being alone. Um, how sad do you think he is in his dreams? Relatively sad. <laughs> Relatively sad. That's a safe answer. Um, I think if you put him in the category, though, of the um, sister twins in infancy, the lone youth who in his dreams did weep, two lovers linked innocently, um, calm old age with, bright, with snow bright hair and folded palm, that it might be more like um, weeping at an opera. 
That is to say that what you have here are figures of innocence. Even though they're having sex, even though they've lived a full life, some of these figures, they're also figures of innocence. Um, and they're figures of, of human experience, emotional experience. Um, not figures who are distraught, not figures who are miserable, but figures who somehow are having the fullness of what human life is. Um, Shelley will use the phrase, as you'll see later, sweet though in sadness. Um, and I think there's something very Shelleyan in ways that we'll um, have more occasion to talk about, but there's something very Shelleyan about the way he gives you three or four people who are clearly figures of um, um, optimistic innocence or life-affirming innocence in their sleep. And in that list, he then includes the lone youth who in his dreams did weep, which I think has the effect of making that figure also seem a figure of life-affirming innocence. Um, that is, it's not that life is that a good life is one in which you never weep and which you're never alone. A good life is one in which you do weep and are alone, but that won't be the major fact about your life. It's part of what makes it possible for you to know the fullness of life. If you've never wept, if you've never been alone, you don't know how deep, and therefore you don't know how rich life is. That's part of the richness of life. So I think what you have here are four figures, or five figures, um, who stand for a kind of sleep in which the full richness of life is being experienced the way you would um, in, um, to quote a great title of Wallace Stevens's, um, the sad strains of a gay waltz. Um, that is, it has to have sad strains in it, too, to be full. But it's not sad as in Byronic misery. It's sad as in part of what gives depth to this group of people. And we can see that from the next conjunction. But other troubled forms of sleep she saw, not to be mirrored in a holy song. So stanza 61 gives you one form of sleep. And that form of sleep includes everything that human life in its wealth would include. But then there are other troubled forms of sleep, not to be mirrored in a holy song. Forms of sleep that shouldn't be described even in a holy song. His song isn't quite holy, although it wants to be, so he tells us. Distortions foul of supernatural awe. So what does that line mean? Like, I mean, it's a critique of religion. Say that again? It's a critique of religion. Of religion, a critique of religion. Yeah. What's the, how do you know it's about religion? Okay, supernatural, but why isn't it about, oh, no, zombies? Yeah, people are distorted. Like, 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 maybe by the preaching, the, pre the preaching of the church. 
Okay. Just just by way of close reading, though, what word tells you it's about religion? It is about religion. Yeah. Go ahead, Tony. Holy, but he's he actually means his own song is or wants to be holy. So he's he's the irony here is that um, if you want to if you want to sing a holy song, you better not mention religion because that will destroy any holiness in your song. So what word tells you, so holy there is precisely not religious. What word tells you in the next line, distortions foul of supernatural awe. What word tells you that's religion, Kevin? Awe, yeah. Um, that is awe is what we're supposed to feel for the, the, the God of the Abrahamic religions um, of Christianity in particular. Um, so supernatural awe. God is a supernatural figure. We must feel awe for him. And these call, these, he says, cause troubled forms of sleep. Um, foul distortions caused by supernatural awe. So again, think of Julian and Madelow. Think of the madmen um, that Julian is complaining about who are told, that is, who hear the bell tolling them to evening services, to vespers. And Julian thinks that's utterly absurd that that's happening. As much skill as need to pray in thanks and hope for their dark lot have they to their stern maker, he says. Um, so what religion, what he's saying here, and this does feel like there's at least a moral to this poem, is that things could be amazing except for the oppression of religious institutions. Distortions foul of supernatural awe. And then there are other things which go wrong with human beings, but this is the second category. And pale imaginings of visioned wrong and all the code of customs, lawless law written upon the brows of old and young. So this is the power of custom and of the church and of the government, um, of the monarchy, of um, all the institutions which oppress most people. So some people asleep are dreaming about that. Um, their lives have been distorted, made foul. It's not that they're dreaming of power so much as that what power has done to them has caused them to have foul, distorted dreams, which is to say that even in their sleep they don't escape from the foul, distorted experience that society is imposing upon them, that social, governmental, powerful institutions are imposing upon them. Um, hang on to that word distortion. Do people know literally what a distortion means? What the root meaning of distortion is? You know what torsion is? Twisting. Yeah, so to distort something is to twist it out of what it should look like. So this is all twisted stuff caused by religion and power. Pale imaginings of visioned wrong. So they think that what they're dreaming is wrong. And 
And the vision that this is wrong is a vision imposed upon them by the church, let's say. And all the code of customs, lawless law, you can't do that because it's against custom, written upon the brows of old and young. So there are those who are asleep serenely, um, calm, bright hair, folded palm, linked innocently. Um, and then there are those who have been so oppressed that you can see it in their faces. You can see, to quote Paradise Lost, how care sat on his faded cheeks, how there are deep wrinkles in his forehead, how all these things have left their mark upon Satan. Shelley is saying that all these things leave their mark upon human beings. You can see it in their expressions. The human face divine, to quote Milton again, has become a face which is distorted by the oppression of the world. Um, and all the code of customs, lawless law, written upon the brows of old and young. This, said the wizard maiden, is the strife which stirs the liquid surface of man's life. So the surface of your life should be liquid, should flow, to use um, your feeling, um, should be something that always heals itself the way liquid does. Um, you disturb liquid and it will smooth out again. But no, not in this strife, not in the strife um, that human governments and human um, institutions of oppression have produced. But she herself isn't stirred by it. And little did the sight disturb her soul. So she's not so worried about it. That might be one of the things that Mary Shelley was objecting to. That she sees it and she's against it but she doesn't let it bother her. Little did the sight disturb her soul. We, the weak mariners of that wide lake, where'er its shores extend or billows roll, our course unpiloted and starless make or its wild surface to an unknown gold. Excuse me, gold. So we are the ones who try to steer a course to some unknown goal like heaven, like conventional morality, like salvation, um, on the lake where she simply lives. Um, we are the weak ones who try to reach an unknown goal. But she, in the calm depths, her way could take, where in bright bowers immortal forms abide, beneath the weltering of the restless tide. So she's not trying to get to some shore past the lake of life. Remember, this is the Austral <coughs> lake um, where she has gone with the hermaphrodite. She's not trying to get to the shore of that lake. She's trying to stay beneath it. She is staying beneath it. That's where immortal um, forms abide. That's where she wants to be. And so what does she see? And she saw princes, this is still people sleeping, she saw princes crouched under the glow of sun-like gems, 
and round each temple court in dormitories ranged, row after row she saw the priests asleep. All of one sort, for all were educated to be so. The peasants in their huts and in the port, the sailors she saw cradled on the waves, and the dead lulled within their dreamless graves. And all the forms in which those spirits lay were to her sight like the diaphanous veils in which those sweet ladies oft array their delicate limbs who would conceal from us only their scorn of all concealment. They move in the light of their own beauty thus, but these and all now lay with sleep upon them, and little thought a witch was looking on them. So there you get... um, characteristic image of Shelley. Let me just ask you, how many people feel that you're following the grammar just reading it through like that? Shelley is always grammatical, but um, a lot of people don't know that. (laughs) Um, And it's partly because his sentences can be enormously long, um, especially for poetry. Um, Poetry tends to be written in shorter sentences than prose. Um, But Shelley has no need to do that because of his um, amazing ability to say just what he wants to say, just where he wants to say it, um, and to hit every mark as he does it. Um, That's something you'll see over and over again in him. But look at, this is typical of a certain kind of image that you get in Shelley, and there are four or five examples of it in The Witch of Atlas. Um, (coughs) So she sees all these forms, the sailors, the dead, the priests, the princes. And all those forms are like diaphanous veils. What what do you mean diaphanous veils? What kind of diaphanous veils? Um, The diaphanous veils that sweet ladies oft array their delicate limbs in. So kind of gauzy clothing that sweet ladies oft put on Um, to conceal only their scorn of all concealment. So they're concealing the fact that um, they have contempt for any concealment at all, but lest that contempt, that scorn, be too obvious, they conceal it. So it's a slightly self-contradictory image. Yeah? Who is that? Anyone? Diaphanous? Yeah. Transparent. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually kind of both. It's transparent to light. Um, so, a dia- so it tends to mean very light-colored and transparent. Um, you would call a scrim in a theater diaphanous. That is something that if you um, light, light it from behind, you can see what's behind it. Um, so it's gauzy. Um, and... Um, what it literally means is allowing appearance through. Dia means through, um, as in dialogue, which is exposition through speaking. Um, and fanus is, um, means um, something visible. So it's something you can see through, um, something visible. So they're wearing these extremely light veils that don't conceal anything except that they're not walking around naked because they don't want to um, be too aggressive in their scorn for all 
concealment. So they move in the light of their own beauty thus. So hang on to that idea that they move in the light of their own beauty. So they are illuminating the very thing that they move within. It's not that the light of their own beauty moves with them, which is an easy enough idea, um, just the way a headlight moves with the car, um, but that around them is the light of their own beauty, and within the light of their own beauty they move. So they move within the light of their own beauty thus, but these and all now lay with sleep upon them, and little thought a witch was looking on them. So all these figures, the lone youth, the twin infant sisters, the old man, the princes, the priests, the, those whose um, the sailors, those whose brows um, show the marks of anxiety, they're all asleep. So even though we've already split two kinds of sleepers, those who sleep innocently and those who are experience oppression, the witch is looking at them all <coughs> in their sleep and looks through the forms that differentiate between the innocent and the oppressed and the oppressing sleepers. All of them are asleep now. Priests and princes and infants, they're all asleep. And then she all those human figures breathing there beheld as living spirits. So she sees right through whatever life has or has not done to them. Sees right through the, the hair like ivy of the two linked lovers. Sees right through the snow white hair and the calm features of the old man sees right through the crowns and the um, dead bodies in the dreamless graves and the form of the priests lying in the dormitories. She sees right through their forms whatever has happened to them. And what does she see under those forms? She, all those living, all those human figures breathing there beheld as living spirits. They're all living spirits. To her eyes, the naked beauty of the soul lay bare. And often, through a rude and worn disguise, she saw the inner form most bright and fair. And then she had a charm of strange device which murmured on mute lips with tender tone could make that spirit mingle with her own. Um, so she sees the beauty even in the worst people. She sees the human soul underneath the surfaces that have accreted upon them. So what Shelley is doing here, so I, the reason I'm bringing this up is because there's a very difficult argument that Shelley wants to make for optimism. It's a difficult argument um, because mainly optimism, as Madelow says, as Byron says, um, constantly harping on the nothingness of human life, is that um, optimism sounds 
jejun, optimism sounds as though you just don't know what life is really like. Um, Shelley will later wonder in, a, in his greatest and last poem, unfinished at the time of his death, but that we're going to end this class with, the one you can memorize if you like, um, The Triumph of Life. Um, Shelley's going to ask in that poem why God made irreconcilable good and the means of good. Yeats, who adored Shelley, Yeats, who thought Shelley was one of the great poets who ever lived, rightly thought Shelley was one of the great poets who ever lived, um, echoes this in the second coming um, when he says, the best, do people know this? The best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. So the point is, what's the reason to be pessimistic is that people oppress each other. Or to put it actually more correctly, some people oppress other people. And what makes optimism in the face of that fact very difficult, what makes it for Byron impossible, is the idea that what it means to be a human being seems to involve both the capacity to be oppressed and to feel misery, and that's a bad thing, that human life can be so miserable, and also the capacity to oppress others and to cause misery in other people. And optimism always seems to take the form of saying, oh no, you can break your chains and no longer be oppressed. But what a Madelow will say is, if you do that, you may turn into an oppressor. Those who are no longer oppressed, it seems like there are only two places human beings can be, among the oppressed or among the oppressors. That's what humans are. We are either oppressed or we oppress. And what Shelley is trying to do is not damn the oppressors. Where the first step towards the difficult optimism he's attempting is can be seen here. You're going to see that this is an issue in Shelley over and over again, whether there is some way that freedom doesn't turn into tyranny because Shelley is always seeing that those who become free are at least strongly tempted to become tyrants themselves. Once they have power, they use that power against others. So here, what he's saying the witch sees is that even in the tyrants, she can see the naked beauty of their souls. That is, that their tyranny is not the deepest thing about them. That the fact that they're enslavers and oppressors and religious um, um, tyrants, that's not the most important or the deepest thing about them. So she, all those human figures breathing there, beheld as living spirits to her eyes, the naked beauty of the soul lay bare. And often through a rude 
and worn disguise she saw the inner form most bright and fair. And then she had a charm of, of strange device which murmured on mute lips with tender tone could make that spirit mingle with her own. Um, so then she gives even the priests and the kings strange dreams. Misers dream of giving their money up. Um, priests dream that they're giving everyone freedom to criticize the church. Uh, do you remember what the emperors dream? Seventy-four. The king would dress an ape up in his crown. This is all the dreams she's given them. The king would dress an ape up in his crown and robes and seat him on his glorious seat. And on the right hand of the sun-like throne would place a gaudy mockbird, that is a mockingbird, to repeat the chatterings of the monkey. So that's what, that's what the king would dream, <coughs> that he put an ape on his throne and put a mockingbird to mimic the ape. Every one of the prone courtiers crawled to kiss the feet of their great emperor when the morning came and kissed. Alas, how many kissed the same. That, that's a Byronic joke there. Um, as I say, Shelley and Byron were best friends, and Shelley is partly writing this because Byron has written so much at Tavarima. Um, but the joke is that, so all these courtiers come crawling to see their emperor in this dream, and they kiss their emperor's what? He doesn't even have to say, but they go to kiss the emperor's ass, um, and they kiss the ass of the ape instead. Alas, how many kiss the same? That is, anyone who sucks up to power is actually kissing the ass of an ape. That's what he's saying here. Um, the soldiers dreamed that they were blacksmiths and walked out of quarters in somnambulism. Round the red anvils, you might see them stand like cyclopses in Vulcan's sooty abysm, beating their swords to plowshares. What's that from? Is that familiar to people? And they're short, yeah. Well, it's a prophecy of universal peace from Micha. Oh, um, that people will turn their plowshares into... Um, no, not their plowshares into swords. <laughs> that would be bad. Swords into... Plowshares. Yeah. yeah, that when peace comes, you can melt down all the swords and make them implements for farming, for producing food, producing um, happiness. So their swords shall be beaten into plowshares. Um, so that's what they dream. He's not against everything in the Bible. There's a great biblical phrase. So in their dream, you can see the blacksmiths going out and standing around, beating their swords to plowshares. And what do, what do the jailers do? In a band, the jailers sent those of the liberal schism free through the streets of Memphis, much I wish to the annoyance of, of King Amasis. So liberals are freed in their dreams. Um, and timid lovers um, now dream that they're having sex with each other. And then they see each other the next day, and they blush remembering their dreams. But in fact, it turns out that um, the sex is fertile when the tenth moon shines. Um, 
And then the witch would let them take no ill of many thousand schemes which lovers find. The witch found one. And so they took their fill of happiness in marriage, warm and kind. Friends who by practice of some envious skill were torn apart, a wide wound mind from mind she did unite again with visions clear of deep affection and of truth sincere. So she's trying to make everyone happy. She's bringing them all together. And then he ends the poem very suddenly. These were the pranks she played among the cities of mortal men. And what she did to sprites and gods, entangling them in her sweet ditties to do her will and show their subtle slights, I will declare another time. For it is a tale more fit for the weird winter nights than for these garish summer days. He wrote this in July or in August of 1820. Than for these garish summer days when we scarcely believe much more than we can see. So what's wrong with these summer days? Takes your imagination away. You only believe what you can see. What can we see? Oppression. Um, but here is this poem which is giving you a visionary rhyme that's what he says to Mary, content thee with a, this one time, content thee with a visionary rhyme. And what he's now saying is, okay, my visionary rhyme is over. In these garish summer days, we, can, we scarce believe much more than we can see. Um, and what we see isn't so good. So what does visionary poetry offer you if you're Shelley, as opposed to what the bodily eye can see. <laughs> yeah. Hope, I guess, or yeah. You say more. No, I was going to say an escape, but not so much an escape. More hope for, the, for something past the oppression that you see. Yeah. And what he's saying is the crucial word there is also believe. We can scarcely believe much more than we can see. Um, and that's not good. It's hard to believe. It's hard in this world, or at least in these garish summer days, it's hard to believe um, anything besides what you can see. But you should believe it. That's why he's saying I'm going to wait for the weird winter nights when we are able to believe more than we can see. Um, for various reasons, for an obvious reason, which is that you can think of summer in winter and believe in the in the possibility of spring and summer. Yeah, but people also always talk about like how magical summer is. Like I under I understand why, you know, he would say about winter, like in the winter time, like you dream of you know, sun and the beach and flowers mm -hmm. and whatever when everything's like cold and gray. But I don't understand why he would say that summer. I mean, you don't dream of winter in summer. I mean, maybe you do if you're weird. But in summertime, like there's or if you've gone skiing, right? There's like something like magical and like free about summer, where you, you know, you don't have school, or you know, the days are longer, <coughs> the sunsets are better. It's warm and sunny, which like in people's attitudes like I don't yeah but I think he's see you're saying this in the winter um, he's writing this in garish summer days so it's hot well, it's he didn't dusty have AC. 
<laughs> no, he didn't. Um, it's hot, it's dusty, it's dry, it's droughty. Um, and what he's saying is, you know, you look at the world and it's just this hot, dusty, dry place on this, during these garish summer days in Italy. Um, and what the poem all takes place in um, essentially a winter landscape. Um, how does the witch warm herself? I mean, the imagery here is just so overwhelmingly stunning, um, and it just g comes on so quickly. He wrote this poem in three days. He was a very fast writer. Um, so you guys had a lot more time to read it than he did to write it. Um, and um, what he's doing, what you have to understand is that on these hot summer days, he's imagining these winter, amazing kind of Game of Thrones landscapes um, that are just so different from the dusty heat and emptiness of the hot summer days in which he's writing. And he just goes on and on, really about liquid, liquid fire. Um, about clouds and storms and lakes of liquid fire and um, of coldness all around, but being completely warm under the surface of the liquid fire lake where the witch sleeps. And then of um, flying through the air, flying through the winds, going to the South Pole, um, living among the clouds, um, having the wind shrieking around you but protected from the wind in those bastions and those castles of clouds where the witch and the hermaphrodite are. Um, and all those things are things that he, on this hot summer day, is imagining um, as the witch's visionary life in winter. So part of what's happening here is that what he says to Mary at the very start is um, that this is a visionary rhyme. Just be content with it just this one time. Um, and um, enjoy the possibility of the imagination and what the imagination can do. The endless productions of the imagination. And then the figure who stands for those endless productions is the witch. Where does she come from? How is she born? What's the story of her? Yeah. She, uh, her father is Apollo. Uh-huh. And her mother is one of Alice's daughters. Uh-huh. And what happens? Apollo sees her. Um... Go to, the, go to the very start. Um, stanza two. Her mother was one of the Atlantides, the all-beholding sun, had ne'er beholden in his wide voyage or continents and seas so fair a creature as she lay enfolded in the warm shadow of her loveliness. So what's that like? as she lay enfolded in the warm shadow of her loveliness. You're about to say it. Or they walk with their glow. Yeah, they, they move in the glow of their own beauty. 
So here she lays folded up in folden in the warm shadow of her loveliness. So the sun sees her. He kissed her with his beams and made all golden the chamber of gray rock in which she lay. She, in that dream of joy, dissolved away. So the sun touches her as she's lying in the shadow of her loveliness um, in a chamber of gray rock. The sun touches her and she dissolves away like dew. Um, what does this remind you of? Looking at you. The footnote tells you. Nice. Yes, in book three of the Fairy Queen, um, this is how Belphoebe and Amoret come into being. Their mother, Chrysogeny, is kissed by the sun and she disappears. She sleeps for nine months and then dissolves into nothingness and her two daughters are born. And as she conceives without pleasure, she gives birth without pain. So there's this beautiful image of the dissolution, the easy dissolution and, the, and creation simultaneously. Um, to said she first was changed into a vapor, then into a cloud, such clouds as flit like splendor-winged moths about a taper round the red west when the sun dies in it, and then into a meteor, such as caper on hilltops when the moon is in a fit, then into one of those mysterious stars which hide themselves between the earth and Mars. And then... Um, a new splendor takes form. The cave grows warm, and then in stanza five, a lovely lady garmented in light from her own beauty. So what's that like? <laughs> Barbara? <laughs> Yeah, but also garmented in light from her own beauty. It's, again, like moving in the light of their own beauty or enfolded in the shadow of her loveliness, garmented in the light of her own beauty. That's the image that you get over and over again, not only here but in a lot of Shelley, where something exists within its own emanation. Um, you will... In the Triumph of Life, you will hear of a chariot that comes on the storm of its own rushing splendor. Um, so these are kind of self-sustaining images. That's what's so beautiful about them, is the way they're self-sustaining images. A lovely lady garmented in light from her own beauty. She lay um, enfolded in the warm shadow of her lovely um, self-sustaining images of beauty where what makes um, something beautiful is the fact that it lives in beauty but the reason it lives in, its, in beauty is that the beauty comes from it um, that self-sustaining vision that's what that's, for Shelley is what poetic vision is like um, that's how poetic vision works is to be self-sustaining in that way um, and that's what the Witch of Atlas is representing. Um, so all the amazing images in this poem, and they really are amazing, all the amazing images in this poem 
is come from Shelley spinning out the idea of pure visionary beauty as against everything that sees in the world something that can be owned or put to use or used to oppress others. Here the idea is just to get lost in wonder. And so part of what Shelley wants from poetry is the idea that if you get lost in wonder at what the mind can imagine, you get something like the deepest idea of what the human mind is, that which can imagine these wondrous things, and that which can be lost in wonder at what the human mind can imagine. And that, for Shelley, is the optimistic thing, that the beauty of the human soul, all of that can be destroyed, or at least covered over by the foul distortions of oppression and of thought's empire over thought, to quote another great line. Um, just very quickly, go to stanza 27. Pausing only at stanza 20 to see another example of this kind of imagery. Um, and wondrous works of substances unknown to which the enchantment of her father's power had changed those ragged blocks of savage stone were heaped in the recesses of her bower, carved lamps and chalices and files which shone in their own golden beams. So here are lamps and chalices and vials shining. Why? Because they're reflecting their own golden beams. Where are those beams coming from? From the reflection that their beams are causing. Then stanza 27, what she finds is um, that everyone somehow is lamenting, wants to be with her because they're all mortal. And they're all attracted to, to her. And I'm just trying to think. You know what? We'll pick up with this on, um, on Thursday. Um, on Friday. I still don't know. On Friday. Um, have you started Frankenstein yet? Yes? OK. Um, you should try and read, um, if you can, the first half, since we only have two days on Frankenstein. And it goes fast but at least the first third of Frankenstein for Friday as well. But bring the Witch of Atlas again, because we're going to look at it a little bit longer.